Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. It is my great pleasure today to bring Dr. Paul Dworkin to the podcast. Dr. Dworkin is the Executive Vice President for Community Child Health at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. For 15 years, he previously served as Physician-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's and Chair of Pediatrics at UConn. Dr. Dworkin's interests are at the interface among child development, child health services, and child health policy. Dr. Dworkin's honors include teaching awards, visiting professorships, and named lectures. He was the editor of the Journal of Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics from 1997 until 2002 and was a member of the first entering class of the Academy of Distinguished Educators at the UConn School of Medicine. In 2003, Dr. Dworkin received the prestigious C. Anderson Aldrich Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics in recognition of achievement in the field of child development. His vision led to the creation of Help Me Grow, a Connecticut statewide initiative to promote the early detection of children at risk for developmental and behavioral problems and their linkage to programs and services that is currently being replicated in more than 30 states. Dr. Dworkin received his bachelor's degree from Rutgers University and his medical degree from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He completed his pediatric residency and fellowship training at Boston Children's Hospital. He received a certificate in policy analysis from the University of North Dakota. Dr. Dworkin has served on the boards of numerous community-based organizations and recently completed his tenure as the chair of the Board of the Urban League of Greater Hartford. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Paul Dworkin. Hey, good morning, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Leah. I'm so pleased and happy to be here and thanks for inviting me. Oh, I'm delighted. Well, you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit before this recording and I have to say I was pretty blown over by the scope of the work that you're doing. I mean, it's really, I and perhaps it's a blown up word, but transformational. I think what you're kind of talking about and putting out there, what, what was your path to this? How did you get into pediatrics and how did you get into this visionary work? Well, thanks for being excited about our work. I admit it does seem daunting at times, but we are committed to moving forward. So in retrospect, I've come to appreciate that I've always been far more interested in children and families than even the amazing science of medicine. So my path to pediatrics was probably fairly predictable and 
consistent with my longstanding interests. And, you know, during my training, much like during your training, whether it be medical school or pediatric residency, I was exposed to and interested in a variety of the traditional subspecialties, pediatric cardiology. In fact, one of my very early publications was in pediatric cardiology, the use of propranolol in supraventricular tachycardias of childhood. Wow. (laughs) And I was intrigued by the complexities of pediatric endocrinology. But when it came to really thinking about next steps following residency, I was particularly interested in doing a deeper dive in children's development and behavior. And in fact, there was no formal subspecialty at the time in developmental and behavioral pediatrics. That came later. But I always felt that the science of development and behavior were key to enhancing the impact of child health services and particularly through general pediatrics. So I pursued that fellowship and it led me to a career in which from a clinical perspective, I've spent a number of decades doing general pediatrics and primary care and a number of decades doing subspecialty consultation in developmental and behavioral pediatrics. But I've come to regard my career over more decades than I'd probably care to acknowledge as being framed by a question or two. And the driving question for many years was, what if our goal for child health services was not only to treat or even prevent childhood diseases, disorders, and delays, but was also to promote children's optimal health development and well-being? And for a number of years, I thought of that question as rhetorical. I wasn't quite sure if there was an answer and what the answer was. But certainly more recently, over a number of years, I've come to be absolutely confident that the answer is in the affirmative. Indeed, that is what we should and must be doing, which leads to the next question, how do we strengthen child health services to promote children's optimal health development and well-being? And that really has been the theme of my and our work for a number of years now. Well, one of the things I think you kind of touched on is, you know, you're a general pediatrician to begin with. And I kind of think of that, you know, day to day, head down, got a schedule of 20 kids and I'm, you know, addressing their height, their weight, all the anticipatory guidance, which, you know, the Bright Futures list just gets longer and longer. And then there's, of course, chronic disease management and behavioral health, which is really become a significant part of practice. And then, but what you're talking about is sort of this big transformational, big picture. And, and you know, how, how do you then translate that into, okay, what does that mean for me in practice seeing this child? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, child health providers in general, pediatricians specifically, are so challenged as we speak. Right. We, you've, you, you've listed a number of driving factors that appear almost overwhelming. There's the pandemic and all of its consequences, the mental health 
epidemic or pandemic, which obviously is related to uh, the uh, pandemic itself, and then a whole host of issues that are so, so prominent and so overwhelming in the context of practice. And at the same time, we are trying to ensure appropriate both reimbursement and investment in the type of infrastructure that is critical to achieve the outcomes that we are seeking. And it does appear almost overwhelming. However, I am optimistic, and we'll talk about a number of strategies, and I think it's fair to say reasons for optimism. Practice as we consider it today, however, I think is inordinately driven by what has been referred to as the so-called biology of adversity. Even pre-pandemic, consider the implications, for example, of adverse social determinants or drivers of health, adverse childhood experiences, toxic stress. And the science tells us that 80 to 90% of the outcomes that we seek, and we seek children's optimal health development and well-being, 80 to 90% of those outcomes are driven by social and environmental, genetic, and particularly epigenetic and behavioral factors. So we must be supporting practices to enable providers to address these issues. And we must support these practices by bringing a whole host of sectors and partnerships to bear. We know how to do this. We know how to transform practices such that they are able to operationalize the concepts of developmental promotion, early detection, referral and linkage to community-based programs and services. And we must support practices and practitioners to make this work easier rather than harder, to not expect people to step up to even loftier expectations. That's impossible. And we must fix the fatal reimbursement flaws that so heavily drive practice today and demand higher and higher. But again, there are reasons for optimism. And as we'll discuss, we know how to go about this work and support practices in this transformation. I almost in in listening, which I think is very exciting and, you know, just this idea that you could do something really different with the skills that you have already. You just kind of almost don't know it but almost like you have to roll it back. I mean, I was thinking about treating asthma. You know, we're thinking about, you know, do you need an inhaled steroid? What's the new algorithm? And But then you have to kind of peel it back. Well, is there smoking in the home? What's the home like? Is it in a poor neighborhood? Because that changes. And what's the quality of the... So then you start asking different questions. So it's almost like you have to start in a different place. But how to really make that happen? You know, can you talk about that? You know, you know when you're yeah, saying you know how sure. to do this. So, like, what sure. what would that look like? Well, let me 
share at, at a very high level our history and our evolution. And then we'll come to the asthma question. And I'll specifically talk about the benefits of and the feasibility of being able to go into homes and address those asthma triggers, just as you discussed, so that we're not merely treating the end product of those triggers in the ED or in our practices or with uh, pulmonary medicine subspecialty consultations. So I, I think about the current state of child health services delivery as evolving through the lens of our work as evolving across three major stages. And let me share this with you and see if it makes sense. When we began thinking about how we strengthen child health services to promote children's optimal health development and well-being, and this was way back in the 70s and 80s, we were logically tied to the content of child health services. And I would suggest to you that if you look at the basic content of child health services, child health supervision services, or what we typically refer to as well-child care, the basic content, the basic content, anticipatory guidance, history taking, physical examination, immunizations, procedures, etc., has not changed since the 1960s. The specifics certainly have, but the basic content has not. And I can prove that to you by reviewing child health services recommendations by from the academy over many decades. Again, the specifics have changed, but the general content has been the same. And that cannot be right because think of all that we've learned about brain development, early child development, the biology of adversity. So we began this work by looking at that content and saying which elements of the work are amenable to strengthening to achieve better outcomes. And I'll give you two very specific examples. One you referenced, that is anticipatory guidance. So we researched the extent to which enhancing the developmental content of anticipatory guidance would strengthen the effectiveness of the counseling that we typically provide to families and especially families of young children. And what we found was that the content was far less important than eliciting families' opinions and concerns and encouraging a family-led agenda. And in fact, believe it or not, in 1967, pediatric pioneer Barbara Korsh from Los Angeles encouraged us to address issues at the level of families' co cognitive cultural and psychological readiness. And I would submit to you that over four editions of Bright Futures, we are evolving in that direction. That is, the long list of recommended content is abating somewhat, and the encouragement is to have parents identify priorities for the visit conversation and addressing issues according to a family-led agenda. And we have tools now that enable us to do that. So anticipatory guidance, family-led agenda, addressing parents' priorities rather than the topics that we benevolently feel parents need to hear about could reframe anticipatory guidance and change the focus of child health supervision visits. So, so 
if I'm understanding what you're saying, for example, rather than me having this list of things I'm supposed to cover would be to say, you know, what are the things that you're most concerned about? Because I think maybe we're afraid that their list is going to be so long or that we can't meet that. Uh, Absolutely. I think there is some fear, but encouraging parent agenda setting is so, so much more efficacious. And frankly, if it's a long list that requires follow-up or other strategies, then those are at our disposal also. I'll give you a second example along the same lines with regard to typical content of visits and how these can be relatively easily altered to strengthen their efficacy and our impact. And that is with regard to the early detection of children with developmental and behavioral problems. So as you well know, for decades and decades, we've encouraged pediatricians to employ developmental and behavioral screening tools. And and of course, that's important and indicated. However, uh, our research and that of others, again, back in the 80s and early 90s suggested that while developmental screening tools are extremely important, screening for developmental issues is different than screening for hypothyroidism or phenylketonuria, for example. And the vagaries of children's development are really challenging when it comes to the psychometric properties of developmental screening tools. That's not to say they're not really important, but they have their inherent limitations. On the other hand, parents' opinions and particularly concerns for their children's development are extremely important red flags. And we should be continually eliciting parents' opinions and concerns and using that information to help interpret our periodic administration of screening tools. So we've come a long way over the course of several decades, such that now the AAP recommends, based on research, based on expert opinion, and their official policy statement, first issued uh, in a 2006 and then reinforced by a clinical statement just recently in December of 2019, that the best practice for early detection and developmental monitoring is the process of developmental surveillance and screening, in which each visit, the pediatrician begins by asking the parent, do you have any concerns about your child's learning, behaving, or developing? And the pediatrician not only elicits, but also responds to parents' opinions and concerns. And then periodically, we administer a screening tool in order to ensure that children do not slip through the cracks. And we interpret the results of that screening tool in the context of all that we know about the child through our ongoing surveillance. So surveillance and screening as a comprehensive, integrated approach to developmental and behavioral monitoring. So there are two examples where we could upgrade, if you will, this the standard content of child health supervision services based on what we found through research, anticipatory guidance, developmental surveillance, and screening. It, it's almost like flipping the script a bit in, I guess, when I'm thinking about, you know, I mean, I've done well child care for, you know, 30 plus years, is that I have an agenda of what I think I need to get through. And so I'm focused on well, don't tell me that because I have this long list. 
And, <laughs> and what you're saying is it's not that my list isn't important, but it might actually save some time if I ask them, what are you most concerned about? Yeah. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, I think that long list is particularly daunting for trainees. Think about residents and their continuity practices and for a pediatrician or beginning practice where the feeling is, well, if I don't cover every item on the list, I'm not delivering high quality care. And that's absolutely not true. And, you know, there's so much evidence from the health education literature that if an issue is not a priority for families, then are speaking to that issue will just not be impactful. Well, not it, I mean, impactful. it's kind of like, I mean, I think about motivational interviewing. Exactly. I mean, motivational interviewing. And I once heard, oh, I can't remember, somebody was saying, like, if that is not on their agenda, then kind of almost like you're wasting your breath talking about something that doesn't matter to them. And so you're not yes. going to change anything because it's not an issue for me. And, and for parents who are less inclined to be forthcoming about their concerns or their priorities, then the list is very helpful in suggesting topics and allowing parents to choose. But those are just the implications from way back in the 80s and early 90s. And then we came to appreciate during the 1990s, which uh, has been referred to as the decade of the brain, because all, all of this scientific knowledge about brain development, which really was amassed through the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, really came to the forefront in the 90s with profound implications for the way in which we go about our work. And during that era, we came to appreciate that even if we strengthen our capacity to identify children who are vulnerable and increase risk for adverse developmental and behavioral outcomes, we're not going to be impactful unless we know what to do to support families and address the needs of those children. And that led us to a series of critical community conversations in Hartford, where I work, um, the capital of Connecticut, but a very poor city in a very wealthy state. And those conversations were so influential in helping us determine where we go next with strengthening child health services. We were stunned by how quickly we came to four common assumptions. And these were discussions with families, discussions with community-based organizations, discussions with community leaders, discussions with providers of all sorts. And our assumptions were as follows. Number one, that children in Hartford who were at high risk for adverse developmental and behavioral problems were escaping early detection. And we knew that was the case by simply visiting classrooms in Hartford. Number two, that even in relatively resource poor Hartford, there existed a wide array of programs and services at the community level that were available to support families in promoting their children's optimal health development and well-being. Number three, that Despite the best efforts of child health providers and others to identify children who were at increased risk, and despite the availability of programs and services that were available to support families in promoting their children's optimal health development and well-being, there was a disconnect. That is, we weren't linking these children and their families to community-based programs and services. So these assumptions led to a fourth assumption that 
Hartford's children and their families would benefit from a comprehensive, integrated approach to developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage, whether it be linkage to early intervention services, linkage to community-based programs and services. And based on those four assumptions, we designed a pilot study in the late 1990s, early 2000s in Hartford that used a model, Help Me Grow Today, that included four core components, child health services, child health provider outreach that trained child health providers, pediatricians, family physicians, nurse practitioners in effective developmental surveillance and screening and informed them about the capacity of this model to link their families to community-based programs and services. Secondly, family and community outreach to encourage families to recognize the critical importance of sharing their opinions and concerns and alert them to the capacity of this model to link them to desirable programs and services. And at the same time, engaging community-based organizations to participate in the resource inventory that would enable us to make connections to them. That was the second component. The third component, which is really the heart of the Help Me Grow model, is a single point of access for providers and families alike to community-based programs and services. A child development info line in Connecticut is staffed by care coordinators who are unbelievably successful at linking families to resources. They are successful 80 to 85% of the time because they help families overcome the, the many barriers to successful linkage. And then the fourth component of the model, still true to this day today, because we know there are gaps and capacity issues, is data collection. Data collection that informs us when programs are filled data collection that informs us when we need to expand capacity, data collection that tells us how we're doing and our children and families better off as a result of this model so that we can sustain funding. So this pilot from 97 to 2002 led to statewide implementation of Healthy Grow in Connecticut in 2002, and that's been sustained in every biennial budget to the present. And then we began to receive requests to provide technical assistance to other places across the country who were interested in building out the model. We were so fortunate in securing grant support that enabled us to provide technical assistance. Michigan, by the way, was among our first cohort of five affiliates who began to build the Help Me Grow model. And then over the years, we have now built the Help Me Grow National Center, which is providing technical assistance to 32 states and 110 Help Me Grow systems around the country to implement a comprehensive, integrated approach to developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage that enhances the capacity of all providers, all families, including child health providers. So it's an, been an amazing journey for us that began really during this decade known as the decade of the brain. So, so let me ask you, because I don't know that I know about this, knew about this, or that other people did, is that 
you would expect with something if it was really successful that somehow it would be available everywhere, even in a very rural, you know, upper peninsula of Michigan, that, you know, this would be systematically implemented, accessible. I mean, your point of service where there's a, a contact that knows what's available, how to get to it, it, it makes so much sense. But is it fragmented? Is it, how do you, how do you implement it so it's everywhere? Well, that is certainly our goal and it is certainly a challenge, but I would submit that we know that we're making good progress because we measure the extent to which it is spreading. And you know, all politics are local and how this is built at the local level and built out to be available to the population as a whole is a challenge. But again, we have learned how to do this work. And in addition, Help Me Grow consists of systems which may be operating at the local, for example, the county level or the level of counties or at the state level. And it is typically supported by a backbone organization at the state level who can, for example, engage the legislature, encourage the appropriate public policy, encourage funding for sustainability. It is absolutely a work in progress. And we talk about our affiliates, now 32 in number, as being in various stages of exploration, installation, and implementation. And it's only when the implementation stage is achieved that it is more universally available and you as a pediatrician would know about it and be able to rely on it. It is a work in progress, but every year through our fidelity assessments, we measure the progress being made at the system level and at the affiliate level. And it's considering that this has been going on for just a little bit more than a decade, the progress has been extremely encouraging. Having said that, we can never move fast enough and we are doing our very best. And we're fortunate that we've had very generous funding partners in this work. I mean, because you're based in Michigan, I'll do a shout out for the W to the WK Kellogg Foundation, who've been very generous, particularly in supporting our early work and the C. Wilson Jr. Foundation, who has supported our work in Michigan and in Western New York State. But there is much, much more to do, but we are definitely making progress. And our hope is that within as short a period of time as possible, all child health providers, all pediatricians would see their capacity to practice effective developmental promotion, early detection, and referral and linkage. Our goal is nothing short of transforming child health practices to do exactly that. Although, quite honestly, the task has been made more complex by the new millennium recognition of the biology of adversity. And we've come to appreciate, for example, in this new millennium, that our broad-minded thinking around system building and engaging, for example, 
child health providers, early care and education providers, child care, Head Start, early Head Start, and home visitors, family support providers, is actually as broad as that is and as challenging as that is, it's too narrow. And that we must be mindful of engaging all of the sectors that are so critically important to strengthening families and promoting children's optimal health development and well-being, which brings us to your asthma comment and the housing sector. So, for example, one of the programs in our Office for Community Child Health at Connecticut Children's, our children's hospital, is our Healthy Homes program. And we have the capacity to receive referrals from pediatricians or pulmonologists managing children with asthma and go into the homes, inspect those homes for asthma precipitants, and then undertake at no cost to the family uh, remediation of those asthma triggers, whether it's mold, mildew, asbestos, whatever the triggers are, we have the capacity, thanks to funding from the Department of Housing, thanks to funding from HUD, to uh, go in and uh, address those needs. It's one example of this comprehensive system building approach with, to use our jargon, all sectors in and cross-sector collaboration. Well, and I, I think about there's some linkage issues in my head because I think about a successful program, for example, early intervention early on. So I have a child that's got some language delays. I may or may not have some concerns about autism. Um, and I say either to the family or to me, you can contact early on you know, earlyon.org in Michigan, I can make the referral, but someone will come to your home and do this assessment and determine whether or not you're eligible for services and it's free. So that's amazing. The The problem, and I think it's really effective. Yes. It's, um, it's really great. The problem is I don't get the information back. Absolutely. So there's, there's no like, um, hey, Dr. Gugino, this child is having some difficulty with speech and we're hooking them in with speech services. So when they come in, because now I'm relying on the parent to yes. give me all the info and it oh, would be really. helpful if I knew what was going on. Absolutely. It's such a critical point. In fact, you really have two problems, at least not one. And I'll, I'll amplify the second in just a moment, but you know, we are all, as providers, extraordinarily busy and overtaxed. That is true. However, when you look at the disconnects between child health providers like pediatricians, early care and education like child care providers, and home visitors, the disconnects, the gaps are immense. And I don't say this being critical of anyone. They're immense because we haven't built the connections and we haven't facilitated the communications. And I'll give you two examples of that. One, there was a study not too many years ago, it was, I believe, sponsored by the AAP, and it was carried out by the Hopkins School of Public Health. And it looked at the relationships between pediatricians and home visitors and the extent to which there was meaningful communication and collaboration. And the perhaps not surprising 
bottom line sobering finding was that not only was there a lack of communication and collaboration, but most pediatricians are unaware of the home visiting services that are available in their jurisdiction serving their families. That's not the fault of the pediatricians or the home visitors. Again, it's a failure of the system linkage that must be corrected. In fact, can be relatively easily corrected. And Help Me Grow solves that problem. This lack of linkage between providers, lack of linkage across sectors. The other issue with even early intervention, which many pediatricians feel comfortable making referrals to, and that's great, is that in 45 of 50 states in this country, this is true of Connecticut, I honestly can't recall whether it's true of, for example, Michigan or not, in order for children to be eligible for early intervention services, right, whether it's early on in zero and three, whether it's preschool special education or whether it's school age education, those children must be already manifesting significant delay. And the vast majority of states do not serve children who are on that at-risk trajectory, whom we know unfortunately, given enough time, are likely to deteriorate to a delayed or disordered trajectory. So so you're these, kind of talking about proactive, like we know that these children in these circumstances are at higher risk. So let's go ahead and support them as opposed to this child isn't talking and now we send them. Is that what, that's is that what exactly you mean? exactly right. There is an, uh, certainly the child who isn't talking needs intervention, no question, but there are, there is a large segment of the population, and I'll, I'll say more about that in just a moment, that is on a trajectory on what Neil Halfon, the director of the UCLA Center for Healthier Children, Families, and Communities, has referred to as an at-risk trajectory for whom it's only a matter of time because until they deteriorate to a delayed and disordered trajectory and are then later eligible for services where it's far more difficult to intervene. And by the way, these those are the same children who are most likely being adversely impacted by the social, environmental, and epigenetic and behavioral factors that we've talked about. So we need a strategy to address the needs of those children and families. That is That was the impetus for the Help Me Grow model because those children can be linked to community-based programs and services that do not have the restrictive eligibility criteria of early intervention. I mean, I'll give you one very simple example. What about for the child who is beginning to show mild, maybe modest language delays and linkage to story time at the library or making sure that that child is receiving the benefits of reach out and read through the child health provider? There are interventions that are available that can elevate the trajectory of these at-risk children to a healthy trajectory. That is what we're trying to do. That is what we're doing through the Help Me Grow model. That is what all child health providers should be supported to do. And the other thing I'll say about that is that we worked with the CDC 
and asked them, what percentage of children across the country fall into this at-risk trajectory that we need to focus on and serve? And the CDC's estimate, not mine, the CDC's estimate is that it's 30 to 40 percent of children, depending upon the specific jurisdiction of which we are speaking. Obviously, in the urban core, it's higher. In the well-to-do suburbs, it is going to be at the lower end. But that's a significant percentage of children. It's an extraordinary opportunity for child health providers to strengthen families to promote their children's optimal health development and well-being. And we know how to bring the resources to those practices to make their job easier rather than harder in doing this. Well, I'm I'm thinking about, of course, my mind is racing now because this is just, <laughs> it's just like, well, there's just so many things you could do differently. So kind of to bring it down. Well, and I guess the other thing about the 30 to 40 percent Maybe we shouldn't be surprised since, what, 50% of kids are covered by Medicaid insurance. So we know that there are children who live in poverty and there's a significant yes. number. So so I'm thinking what you're saying, for example, we know that children who are not exposed to as many spoken words have more problems with reading. And in high-stress households, you know, perhaps a child is parked in front of a TV, not because the parent wishes to do harm or doesn't care, but yes. maybe doesn't know or they're, they're doing, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet. But had we known, or ha- now that we do know, how do we encourage and show, you know, taking this book like the Reach Out and Read, and um, talking about that, that that could make a difference. So that's a pro, that's a proactive move that is not expensive and has a lot of potential, not only for the language development, but also for the socialization, Absolutely. you know, kind of addressing the, you know, adverse childhood experience of a disconnect between the parent and the child. So, so, Okay. How do you revolutionize this and make yeah. it happen? How do you yeah. make that happen? How do right. you get the message other than by this podcast? How do you get the message out to the masses like, hey, we could do this differently and it isn't that hard? Yes. That is the key question, isn't it? I totally agree. And let's build on Reach Out and Read for a moment as an example uh, that illustrates the answer. Because I, I do think, you know, we obviously do believe that bringing a model uh, that enhances child health providers' capacity to perform developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage is key. And we want every child health provider, every pediatrician to have access to this model, and we're working hard to do just that. And by the way, I would also say that we know now, we can calculate the return on investment, cost savings, and cost benefit of implementing this model. And we need to use that calculation to drive appropriate investment and reimbursement. We must, and we're aggressively, obnoxiously doing this now at the federal level in trying to move Medicaid in this direction in particular, although all payers in this direction, and at the state and states level, the work that we're doing in Connecticut and the work that we're doing with our Help Me Grow affiliates across the country. And we're seeing some real progress, by the way. I I hate to call out certain states without 
paying due justice to others, but I would cite examples like Oregon, Washington State, New York State, as uh, California, as select examples of states that are recognizing the benefits of a making an investment in the type of transformation that we are advocating. But let me bring it down to the practice level here. And apart from the uh, policy issues and moving the big systems, talk about a little bit more at the practice level what may be feasible. The best example is Reach Out and Read, which has the widest implementation of any model of which I am aware that enables pediatricians and other child health providers to strengthen families, to promote their children's optimal health development and well-being. I mean, as you have stated, I've watched Reach Out and Read since its initial pilot at Boston, the old Boston City Hospital. In fact, we in Hartford were the first site in the country to replicate the Reach Out and Read model. We were so enamored with it. And we know the research Despite the simplicity of the model, the research has been stunning in terms of demonstrating language gains and subsequently academic gains for children. And as you've so accurately stated, we also know that Reach Out and Read is a major strategy to advance children's social-emotional development. In fact, Reach Out and Read is being rebranded as a strategy to promote children's optimal social-emotional well-being. So there is an example of a model that is within the reach of many practices that that can be implemented, frequently support can be found, that does begin the transformation. There are a variety of other models that are being implemented selectively in practices across the country that similarly afford the opportunity to strengthen the capacity of pediatricians to achieve the best outcomes for children. I mean, I'll just offer a limited number of examples with apologies to those whom I don't reference. Healthy Steps, Dulce, which is a combination of Healthy Steps and the Medical Legal Partnership Program, the Medical Legal Partnership Program, the Video Intervention Program, Seek, uh, Safe Environments for Every Kid, These are models that have been shown to be efficacious. They promote children's optimal health development and well-being, and they also have been shown to be feasible to implement within the practice setting. But they require technical support, they require resources, they require resource, they require funding to sustain them. We need to bring these models to scale and impact, and we're working hard to do that, and we've seen some progress. So, for example, there's been a major commitment to bringing healthy steps to many more pediatric practices across the country with very generous foundation support, and that is now being orchestrated under the strong leadership of zero to three. So we have the models, we have the know-how, but we need to bring these models to scale and impact. We can document the fiscal rationale for doing this. 
We need to convince the payers, the policymakers, and the providers that this is important, but we are seeing some of the benefits of that advocacy now. I mentioned some states, and again, there are others that I should probably also call out. There's very strong work being done in states like Texas and Florida, for example. And in addition, we're seeing the key federal agencies similarly calling for the type of comprehensive system building that embeds child health providers and the delivery of that care within the context of, again, using our jargon, a comprehensive system with all sectors in and cross-sector collaboration. We've seen this in the strategic priorities and strategic plan of the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, the Administration for Children and Families, the Center Centers for Disease Control, and the U.S. Department of Education. So, for example, we have just received an amazing $30 million grant from the U.S. Department of Education to strengthen system building in North Hartford, the poorest neighborhoods within our capital city and to enable child health providers to far more effectively advance developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage as part of a comprehensive, integrated system of services. And our, we are, we've just begun this work, just begun this work, literally within the past month, but we hope to be able to hold this up as a model, not just for the state, but nationally, because th this is how we have to go about this work. We have so much experience and knowledge at our disposal to do it. And in the short term, we can begin with implementation of these successful models within the pediatric setting. But we must bring the resources, the supports, the technical assistance, and the funding by which to do it. It's sort of like a, a chicken and the egg, so where exactly do you start? But I, I think one thing, I mean, just in listening to you, is like, how do we, one, sort of change the message to a, yes. a primary care is, one is, what if you could do this more effectively? What if the work that you do in that visit meant a whole lot more to this child's outcome and there's a resource for you. And I, and I, an example I think of my head is like integrated behavioral health. So we now have a social worker in our practice. So I'm asking the questions about their, you know, pediatric symptom checklist. So I'm looking for trouble. Is there trouble? And these may be kids where there's no parent concern necessarily. There is, but I didn't ask it. So this is a way of me asking. There's a concern. I can have my social worker step in, and if the concern is big enough, they can come back and talk with the social worker or refer them to another program. The close the loop is, if I refer them to another program, can I make sure that they keep me in the loop? Yes. And that way, and, and that to me is, is practical and real. But in order to do that, you know, our hospital, for example, took on paying for social workers and it took a while to where you could bill for their services. But now you have to convince payers and, you know, federal folks that this isn't just a, a handout that has no effectiveness. So that you actually will have a population of children that are not in the juvenile justice system, they're exactly. not in the welfare system, and that, you know, how do you prove that now when it's maybe down the road? So, I mean, they're big questions, but there are practical things that you could do today. 
Absolutely. You know, we do have, from a policy standpoint, these challenges, right? You've described the so-called wrong pocket problem, right? Where we make investments in child health, early care and education, and family support like home visiting. We know there are payoffs. By the way, they're short and long term. We know there are returns on those investments, cost savings, cost benefit. We can point to them. But those returns come in special education, behavioral health, the welfare system, and the correction system. And we can't do the bookkeeping, right? We can't link the investments with the returns because they occur over different sectors. We must correct that problem. And there is good work going on in a number of states that will hopefully in the relatively short term enable us to do that, solve the wrong pocket problem. The other problem that you've identified is referred to as the long pocket problem. That is, our investments do pay off over the short term, but they certainly pay off in major ways over the long term. Tell me the elected official who is willing to wait more than the two to four years for which they are elected for those returns. So we need to be able to speak to both, but we also need to be able to change the bookkeeping such that long-term return on investment is valued. It's really the reason why so much of healthcare reform today is disproportionately focused on seniors and even seniors in nursing homes, because that's where the low-hanging fruit is. And we somewhat sarcastically reference this as the relentless pursuit of scorable savings, which seems to be what healthcare reform is predominantly, if not exclusively, about. We need to change that messaging, just as you've said. And we have begun to very aggressively make the case that not only should child health services transformation be a priority, but it should be first, not last on the Right. I mean, we need to, we need to value kids, put kids first. You know, one of the things, the wrong pocket, I hear in my head is a wrong pocket makes me crazy is insurance companies requiring that we document BMI. Well, knowing what a child's BMI does in my mind, and I don't think that there's anything to support, does that really change whether or not a child's obese, going to have heart disease down there? It's just a number that is not helpful. What is helpful is understanding where's that child getting food, what kind of food are they getting, and how do I help you find food that is more nutritious? That's really the problem, not the BMI, but where the insurers are reimbursing us is are you getting that number down? Because somehow that's some, in someone's had a magical way to save yeah. money. And, and it, it's, it for me is a huge wrong pocket. It's just a waste of time. You're so right. And the issue of measures and metrics is critical to getting this right. You know, we, we tend to use data because it's available rather than because it's meaningful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've devoted countless decades to advancing the notion of developmental screening to that of surveillance and screening and certainly emphasize the importance of screening. And yet, I would say to you that screening rates as a managed care measure are almost useless because they don't tell enough of the story, right? 
they don't tell the extent to which children and families are being identified, and they don't tell us whether or not children who are at risk are being linked to the appropriate programs and services. So we need to use the appropriate measures and metrics rather using an, an approach that we've somewhat cynically referred to as analogous to looking for the lost keys under the lamppost because that's where the lighting is, right? We use data mm-hmm. because it's available regardless of how meaningful it is. And I think your example of BMI is perfect. Think about this. Rather than reporting on measurements of BMI, what if instead you were to ask a valid question regarding families' food security or insecurity? How much more meaningful would that be as a measure of children's ultimate well-being? And we have many, many examples of this, many examples of this. And we're becoming increasingly sophisticated with our ability to measure children's well-being. That's a critical measure that we should be embracing to inform what we are doing in, for example, managed care contracts. Of course, that makes the assumption that we can bolster practices to enable to achieve to enable them to achieve optimal well-being but again i'm confident that we can it's almost like it, there needs to be a whole dedicated i don't know oversight or or department that's just focused on child health maybe there is but that is like overarching and big. Another, here's an example that I see because I focused a lot on suicide prevention in the last five years of my career. So the first thing we did was, are we doing enough screening? So we were able to improve our screening, but more meaningful is, well, what was the result of the screening? Well, we found out month to month to month, you know, 15% of the kids were, were answering yes to having some degree of suicidal ideation. Okay, well, that's that's not great. But then what's the next thing is, well, then we looked at, well, was anybody asking, well, how bad is the suicidal ideation? And then the next part that really we we, we need to go next is, of those kids, if you could link them and track it, could you keep them out of the emergency room? And that was the next iteration. But it, it you know, it takes more than one person doing that. You you know, somebody has to see the value of, you know, because sometimes it's dollars that convince people. If I'm not, or a pain point, if I'm not tying up your emergency room with kids that don't need to be there because they really need to be in some other place to get the help they need, that will save you time and money. And that's your pain point is ER throughput. But so let's go back and look at that and let's track those kids that were identified and not just how many did we ask the question because, okay, that's good that we're doing it, but what are you going to do with it? Does, is that yeah, sort absolutely. of in the same vein? Absolutely. It's an extraordinarily compelling example, extraordinarily compelling. Our emergency department is overwhelmed by the number of children stuck in behavioral health crisis. And it's it's a problem that is at least tripled in volume over the past years. It's well, enormous. And you're, you're absolutely right that our focus must be on how we are ultimately helping these children as opposed to the number of screens that are being administered. You, you also made a really good point about 
the need to better focus on children. And, and I'll just say from a general observational standpoint, we've been really impressed. We, we When we go into states, and again, we're working in 32 of them, one might assume that the political orientation of the state, how red or how blue it is, might have an impact on how successful we are with advancing this type of work. And that's not true at all. There is no correlation between a state's political orientation and the extent to which the state is committed to strengthening families and promoting children's optimal health development and well-being. No correlation. On the other hand, we have the greatest success when there is a centralized support for children and families. And typically that plays out in one of two ways. A number of states have children's cabinets in which leaders of key state agencies, public health, children and families, child welfare agencies, behavioral health, come together on a regular basis to jointly address the needs of children and families, problem solve, and even develop comprehensive integrated programs. Another example is many states now, or a larger number of states now, have agencies that focus on children. In Connecticut, for example, we have an office of early childhood. And many states have their equivalents where there are agencies that are specifically charged with addressing the well-being of children and their families. So that type of concentrated, focused approach is very helpful. And from a public policy standpoint, is a direction that we absolutely should be continuing to move in. Well, and I think about an example in, in our community, because I was, I mean, I've always been interested in mental health and, you know, so was asking the question, finding those that were struggling. And then there was this disconnect because I'd send them to a therapist and I didn't hear anything back or they were getting special education in school, but I didn't know. So we put together a program where mental health and mental health providers, both public and private and schools, and we sat down and we talked. Well, I finally figured out why my diagnosis of a child with autism wasn't getting autism services because if it didn't qualify as affecting their performance, then they didn't. It was like revolutionary for me to say, oh, or how the CMH, the community mental health, was assessing severity of symptoms in order to qualify for services. So we began to have these conversations and just got to know each other. And if that was, you know, something on a bigger scale that you could do that, that, you know, we just need to talk to each other. I mean, that's, to me, that's like, the first thing is, you know, pick up the phone. Now, I mean, that's a small one-on-one sort of thing, but if there's a greater sort of pick up the phone, how do I know, you know, where I fit in the helping the child? Absolutely. And one of the uh, really positive aspects of the newest AAP clinical guidance on developmental surveillance and screening, again, December 2019 in pediatrics, was the acknowledgement of the importance of when concerns arise, soliciting input from others who know the child. Just this type of cross-discipline communication and collaboration that is so critically important. Again, that's a heavy lift, right? Teachers are very busy. 
pediatricians are very busy. And it's time, by the way, they should be legitimately reimbursed. It, it is delivering services to the child and families. But we need to address that critical gap. Look at what happened when you did that. The, the other observation that we made and, and then addressed was the lack of, ironically, coordination among care coordinators from different sectors. So, you know, we would typically describe three care coordinators from three different agencies representing three different sectors, perhaps from uh, child welfare, child health, and early care and education, all arriving on the same doorstep at the same point in time looking for, for the same family who relocated two weeks ago. You know, we would describe that somewhat sarcastically, but we would find providers in the audience shaking their head, yes, that happens all the time. So we devised a model called the Care Coordination Collaborative Model in Connecticut, whereby care coordinators from different sectors come together on a regular periodic basis to inform each other what they are doing jointly problem solve, best understand each other's capacities. And we found that rather than overwhelming families or failing to meet families' needs, this type of an integrated approach is so much more beneficial. It, it seems it seems like such a simple thing. And I'm wondering if the advent of Zoom might help facilitate that because now I don't have to be in a physical place. If there's an IEP meeting happening, maybe I can attend because I can zoom in. So, you know, that may make a difference. So these are, I don't know, these are so exciting and it it feels like always so much to be done. So if you could, to wrap it up, if you could give a message to a pediatrician, a pediatric clinician, nurse practitioner, PA out in the field, and you could say, here is a place you could start today. What would it be? Well, I think if we want to really, and it's so appropriate to think about this at, at the basic practice level, I would go back to several of the points that we've already made. And I think to the extent that child health providers could reorient their practice to encourage a parent-led agenda, that would be an enormously helpful first step. And again, there are tools out there that can help providers do exactly that. And then secondly, or alternatively, or perhaps both, I would also encourage providers to consistently, at every opportunity, elicit parents' opinions and concerns for their children. And the question can be as simple as, do you have any concern for your child's learning, behaving, developing? I might even expand that to children's learning, behaving, developing, and well-being, and pay careful attention to uh, parents' responses so that we both elicit and attend. I I think those would be very substantive, very important first steps And then my other thought, depending upon the specific community in which 
a practitioner is working would be to pay attention as opportunities to embed new models come along, whether that's a model of developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage like Help Me Grow, or more specific models like uh, Healthy Steps or the Medical Legal Partnership Program, recognizing that that requires resources, support, technical assistance, but that typically is provided to enable practices to do this feasibly and meaningfully. So I think there are some steps that can be immediately taken that are within the jurisdiction of practitioners. And then I think there are opportunities that arise that are a little bit more is idiosyncratic, depending upon the community, that I would encourage practitioners to be mindful of and take advantage of. Well, and I think I'm, I was also thinking about you know, just know what's out there in your community. What are yes. the resources that you have? And then encourage this kind of full circle communication. And, and you know, essentially, it's like making friends with the people in the other yeah. sector. And it makes it, honestly, it makes it way more fun because now I know who to call at CMH when I'm having trouble with a kid that I don't know what else to do. And I find that they've got home-based services that can, re- you know, this isn't a, it isn't about a pill. I mean, at the, I think as I got further along in my career, I began to realize that behavioral health was not about medication. I mean, medication plays a part of it, but it's a small part. There were so many other things that were much more effective. And, you know, the, the medication was treating a symptom, but not, you know, the, at the root. So, uh, yeah, so I think talking to each other would help close the loop. And in my mind, it takes time, but it's time well spent. The, the return on investment for me was I'm not in this alone. Yes. You know? And for the teacher to say to me with a child who has significant neurologic development problems, really severe ADHD, but the Ritalin was, you know, making him not grow. But when I said, okay, let's take him off of it and talking to the teacher and she's like, this is, we got to do something because this kid cannot learn. Well, then we could problem solve. But if I was just relying on the parent who really didn't know what was happening in the classroom, so that phone call to the teacher saved me so much trouble. Absolutely. And let's use one final example to emphasize the importance of supporting pediatricians. You referenced the importance of knowing what's out there at the community level, right? And we we do not believe that pediatricians, their practices, social workers, clinic staff, should be spending their time keeping track of the bewildering array of community-based programs and services that come and go depending upon funding and a variety of other considerations. Because that, that if that goes on at the practice level, it means it's going on in every practice level and it's completely redundant and it's taking a social worker away from providing the critical behavioral health services that you are looking for them to provide. So one way in which we can help practices is by centralizing that function and keeping track of those resources and making sure that all practices have access to a centralized access point that is mining and maintaining that accurate list of community-based programs and services. We do that through Help Me Grow. It needs to be done in support of the practice. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That, that having a point person and how exactly to make that happen is a whole nother question. But 
Well, listen, this has just been such a rich, exciting conversation. And I always finish up my conversations with a question about if you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what advice would you give yourself? (laughs) Yeah, what a great question. You know, I I often characterize our work, while it it certainly is informed by the work of others and uh, the knowledge that we've accrued, but in so many respects, we're, we're subject to making it up as we go along or building the plane while flying or whatever, however you would like to describe the need to figure out what to do when you're dealing with issues that have not been previously addressed. So I've come to appreciate the need for expanded skills and knowledge beyond those that were provided even through medical education and training, et cetera. So If I had the foresight, which of course I didn't at the time, I think I would have encouraged myself in addition to pursuing some fellowship training to also think about expanding my knowledge in other related areas, whether it's public policy or population or public health or business or even the law. Expertise in any or all of those areas uh, would be extremely helpful and would certainly inform uh, a good bit of the work that that I and we are trying to do today. So maybe some elements of those, maybe all pediatric training should encompass at least an introduction to public policy, given the strong opportunity for advocacy on the part of pediatricians. Well, and you know, pediatric trainees, I mean, that's, they love advocacy, you know, and it's just, I mean, I think back on, you know, what things have served me well, taking Spanish in high school, taking Spanish in college, you know, that served me well. I mean, I'm not fluent, but enough to get by in a pinch if I had to, if there's no interpreter and, you know, it, it was helpful, you know, to sort of broaden my horizon a little bit, but. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. I mean, the work that you're doing is exciting and important, and I hope that you're able to spread the infectious nature of this work because it should go viral. Well, thank you, Leah, and thanks for the opportunity, and thanks for the discussion. I I really, truly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Dworkin. I just love these conversations. They're big. They're thoughtful. And it's the kind of thing that just can pump you up and make you want to do more. So here are my takeaways. Number one, Dr. Dworkin offered the 30,000-foot vision of child health reform and at the same time offered doable actions at the grassroots primary care practice level. So, you know, right there in the office. Number two, the ideas are big. What if the goal was not just prevention, but instead child health promotion? And what if the focus was parent-driven? Number three, this work follows the decade of the brain and understanding biology, followed by the implications of ACEs and toxic stress and epigenetics, and followed now by resilience building. Could the answers be something we already know how to do? I mean, you know, pediatricians were really good at seeing children and their families on a regular basis, establishing relationships, and just knowing kind of the nitty gritty because people trust us. So I think we have the skills to do this. Number four, we now know what can happen to children affected by ACEs, poverty, and racism. And 
These are described in detail in many of the American Academy of Pediatric Policy statements, and those are all uh, listed in the resources in the show notes. And, And we see the effects of these things in our kids. So the next step is up to us. Number five. So what does that look like? And is it really possible? That's always the question, right? We are all so busy just trying to keep our heads above water to meet the needs of our patients. And then, of course, we have to document all of that, the bane of our existence. Dr. Dworkin says, yes, we can do something. We can ask parents what their children's needs are, what their concerns are at each visit, and let that drive the work we do. If there's too much on the agenda, because I think maybe that's a fear if we ask, are we going to get more than we can handle, then we have them come back. Number six, this work is not an individual sport. It requires a cross-sector team that can collaborate in meaningful ways, and it has to include closed-loop communications. I think we talked about in the podcast how we often refer kids out for various services, or they're already getting in-home services with family nurse partners, and we never hear about it. And it's unfortunate because we could benefit from the information that those nurses are seeing in the home and vice versa. And if we could inform each other about what's really going on with the child in all kinds of settings, we could do a better job. Number seven, help me grow is a bold strategy that looks for children in already at-risk trajectories and then links them to resources before the need arises. This is not just screening for delays, but instead searching for opportunities. Number eight, the Help Me Grow model included four steps. First, outreach and detection surveillance. I think we're really good at this part. The next, community outreach and linkage based on parent expressed needs. Not what we think they need, but what the parent thinks they need. Then single point access for care coordination with effective linkages. And when they did this, they found that they could link 80 to 85% of the time. And that just blows my mind. And then lastly, data collection for meaningful outcomes. Things like food insecurity, housing, some of those social determinants of health that we know make a difference versus some meaningless information we have to collect because it's a HEDIS measure. Number nine, the Reach Out and Read program is a beautiful example of an upstream program that builds on the strengths of the parent-child relationship, you know, that bonding time when the child's sitting on the lap, listening to the story, looking at the pictures, and then it builds vocabulary and language skills fosters reading skills, and improves academic success. And it all is in the hands of the parent, a beautiful book. Number 10, is this work cost-effective? Is there a return on investment? Yes, says Dr. Dworkin. His work has shown that for every dollar spent, there is three to seven dollars saved. And this has to be translated such that insurance payers and federal and state funders can see the value. So we have to figure out how to deliver this information in really meaningful ways. Many of these programs have been funded by large grants and foundations, but we need this work to be sustainable. And I think that's the case for lots of really important initiatives is that we're always looking for, okay, how do we keep this going? Number 11, we have to look beyond the wrong pocket. 
In other words, meaningless measures of outcomes, and I posited like BMI, and look for the long pocket. That's the big payoff and the long-term effects as a result like graduation rates, involvement in juvenile justice, foster care entry, mental health outcomes. And again, some of those things I mentioned earlier, like food security, housing security, those are meaningful to children. Number 12, so where can you start today? First, elicit parent opinions and reorient your office visits to a parent-led agenda that then informs your anticipatory guidance and support. So we have a long list of those anticipatory guidelines, and it is daunting to try and figure out how we're going to cover everything. But if the concern the parent has is about the child's sleep and how they're eating, go there because that's where you're likely to make impact because it's important to the parent. And then we can include some of those other things, but we really have to make sure we connect with parents on that item of concern to them. And and I think it helps build trust because they will feel, and rightly so, that we're listening to their needs. We're not just trying to fulfill our own agenda of what has to happen in a visit. Secondly, look at what resources you already have and work with community agencies, hospital organizations, schools, community mental health, early intervention programs, family nurse partners, child care providers, and look for ways to centralize access. This isn't our job to kind of keep track of all the resources, but if we could figure out how to centralize and the Help Me Grow program did just that, we can promote that continuous communication that I mentioned earlier, that closed loop, and so that we know that everyone's on the same page. And I'm kind of wondering with the whole advent of our new Zoom life, if we'll be better able to communicate with each other using that modality. Number 13, big change feels overwhelming, but it can start with you. Be brave, be bold, be innovative, and always be the voice for children and families because it's what matters most. And it's what what's fun and it's what gets us up in the morning knowing that we really can make a difference. So I thank all of you who I know are making a difference out there in the field. These are tough times, and sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's going to ever let up. But there is hope in each other and in our families, and we just do one day at a time and find joy where we can. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.